Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 135, and today's guest is John Burns, CEO of TB12. A lot has been reported about Tom Brady's health and training regimen. At 42 years old, he is still performing at an elite level in the NFL as the quarterback of the New England Patriots. So it makes you wonder, what if we could all leverage the same methods that the six-time Super Bowl champion has leveraged to help us improve our own health and well-being? Well, that is the goal of TB12, the company that was started by Tom Brady and his partner, Alex Guerrero. As described by the company, TB12 is centered around a holistic philosophy for health and wellness by using workouts and nutrition to help you do what you love longer. John Burns is TB12's CEO. His career has been focused on investing and helping to build consumer companies like Lululemon, Spartan Races, Oathcraft Pizza, Everybody Fights, and others. It was John's own personal experience at TB12 that helped him recover from a hockey injury, which ended up being the catalyst for his involvement in the company. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what it's like having Tom Brady as your boss, a discussion about the trend of professional athletes who are becoming entrepreneurs or investors, John's background story and the details behind his investments in the consumer industry, how Tom Brady got connected with Alex Guerrero and how TB12 got its start, lots of details on TB12 and its future plans, great advice on building a consumer brand from the ground up, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a BizPage subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A BizPage subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk. Obviously, um, we're going to talk about uh, your background and all the great things you've done as an investor, but now you're CEO of TB12, which most of the people listening to this are either in Boston or in New York, so most people in Boston know what TB12 is, uh, and we're coming off the heels of uh, Tom Brady's season, 20th season with the first victory of the season last night with a trouncing of the... Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, thirty-three to three. So we're heading off on the right foot. Yeah, but before we get for a second, I watch football these days. Like my life depends on it. So <laughs> absolutely, I think football now. Yeah. So TB Twelve is uh, Tom Brady's entrepreneurial endeavors, right? So he started this company, and I'm excited to learn more about kind of the foundation there. But um, I have to ask you the question: So what's it like having Tom Brady as your boss? <laughs> it's definitely a unique experience. Um, you know, I do get that question from time to time. Tom, uh, what you see on the field with Tom and what you hear from Tom in his press conferences and what he says publicly is, is very much who he is. So he's actually a very easy person to work with. Um, he is, uh, I would say, the consummate leader. Um, I do work for Tom. Tom is my boss, but I've never once in the year I've been with Tom felt like he's my boss. Um, he's very collaborative, very team-oriented, um, and you really – I think with Tom, he is exceptional at kind of knowing his place and knowing other people's places. And so I think the folks that work best with us here at TB12 and with Tom, and I'd like to include myself in that, that category as, as well, um, we're good at knowing where we play well and what our role is on the team. Now, what I also think is very interesting is the, uh, the trend of athletes uh, certainly becoming more entrepreneurial. Before, you know, they would earn their money as a professional athlete and some would, you know, be smart with their money and be able to provide for their, you know, futures. And then some famous stories of, you know, athletes that just burn through all their money because they have a massive payroll and unfortunately they're left with nothing. Um, but what I'm seeing now is a, a trend where you have, you know, people like Steph Curry, um, uh, Kevin Durant, who, you know, obviously they're at Golden State, so they're in, you know, the mecca of, of tech, but you're seeing these entrepreneurs that are making investments in tech companies and being angel and seed investors. So what, what, just curious to your thoughts of, you know, how athletes are becoming more entrepreneurial. Yeah, I think it's representative of a broader cultural shift. So I'm in my late forties and you go back to when I was younger, um, you know, everyone wanted to be a rock star, right? And that was kind of what 
you aspired to be when you were, you know, in your teens and in your early 20s, maybe. Um, and then, you know, there were different fits and starts where, you know, I work on Wall Street and all these other things that people thought were like the hot professions. And certainly with the advent of technology and uh, some of the successes that have happened in the public markets and otherwise, I think we've got a generation of people who have grown up uh, wanting to be entrepreneurs, effectively. And uh, when I started in the venture capital business, uh, which is now 20 years ago, almost, when I got into that business, um, there was huge information asymmetry. Not everyone even knew what a venture capitalist was. The world's totally changed. So a lot of these athletes are young. Remember that, too. I mean, our guy Tom is at the other end of it, right? He's 42. But a lot of the people you reference are young. Steph Curry's a young guy. Um, these are young people who, to me, um, they're athletes first, but their desire to be entrepreneurs and investors is, to me, just representative of a broader cultural and social shift where there's a generation of people that have an appreciation for that and have an appreciation for entrepreneurship and, and whatnot. So I think the athletes at some level reflect that. Yeah. No, entrepreneurship is definitely that standard of almost like rock star status. You have Elon Musk and people that are changing the world, right? So it's uh, definitely has that gravitas that, you know, Shark Tank, it's done a great job of promoting entrepreneurship. Yeah. I have young kids. They watch Shark Tank. I mean, my kids are, you know, uh, nine to 14. I, they watch Shark Tank. You know, when I was their age, you know, I was not watching Shark Tank, right? I was, it was different then, right? I didn't, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be John Bon Jovi, not Mark Zuckerberg, right? So it's just a different generation. A lot of these entrepreneurs, it's the same, it's the same thing, you know? And, and these are the entrepreneurs that have done it well and the, the athletes that have done it well, excuse me, like, like Tom and Steph and the other ones you mentioned, Kevin and otherwise, um, you know, they're at the top of their game and their profession. And you'd think most of the world's looking to be like them. Well, oddly enough, they're at the top of their game. They want to keep elevating their game and they want to take what they've learned on the field, on the court, otherwise to other professions and other areas. And, you know, business is a very natural one given the cultural dynamic today of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Well, let's rewind the clock for you. So, uh, so where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Um, so I was uh, always a bit of a, um, a bit of a free spirit, kind of always marched to my own drum. That's uh, what my mom would tell you if she were here. Um, grew up down on Long Island in Connecticut, uh, ended up going to Boston College, and um, kind of ended up there, uh, not by a lot of science, but uh, but through you know some people I knew from a town I grew up in who that went there and uh, had a great experience. And again, just tying back to the conversation, when, uh, when I was in college, it would have been, you know, uh, like the early few years of the 90s, so like 91, 92, 93, and back then, we're a little bit of a recession in 91, but back then, it was all about, you know, Wall Street or consulting firms. And so when I was at BC, um, my focus was just on like, how do I get to Wall Street? Yeah. Like, that's what everyone wanted to, to do back then. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of how I started my career. I started my career at Merrill Lynch. Yeah. So, the, so you ended up in that career path originally. So what were you doing at Merrill Lynch at first? So I had an interesting opportunity. Um, it's actually a pretty uh, funny story. You know, when I was there, um, none of the big Wall Street firms were recruiting at BC at the time. And uh, so I had to go out and kind of find my own opportunities. And I remember I got an uh, opportunity to uh, look into a trading job at Solomon Brothers at the time, International Investment Banking with Morgan Stanley. I had an opportunity as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. And then I came across this uh, management training program at uh, Merrill Lynch. And uh, my father worked in manufacturing. I came from more of a blue collar background uh, when I was younger. And uh, once you're in management training program, it was like, you got to go to Merrill Lynch, work in a management training program. So I ended up working for Merrill Lynch. Um, they had a program at the time uh, called the Junior Executive Training Program. And at that point, any C anyone who'd ever been CEO of Merrill Lynch had gone through that program. And so, you know, being 21 years old, I was younger, I was in college, uh, being 21 years old. So, okay, I'm just going to go to Merrill Lynch and management training program. And I'm going to be the CEO of Merrill Lynch one day. So, um, you know, it was, it was just, again, it was a different time. It was a, it was a cool opportunity. And I uh, spent the first five years of my career at Merrill Lynch. Got it. And how'd you end up in private equity at Summit? So in the uh, category of, you know, the world takes many turns. Um, I was at Merrill Lynch and I realized pretty quickly at Merrill Lynch that the entire company was driven by a sales culture, which um, derived from their field offices that, financial consultants and advisors, things like that. And so I got an opportunity to go run uh, marketing uh, for Merrill Lynch for a group at the time called Business Financial Services, where we did everything from 
lines of credit to 401k programs to stock option programs to you know basic financial houses and planning for companies all with an attempt to get the entrepreneurs as clients on the private advisory side mm -hmm. and through that job i ended up um you know kind of working my way up a little bit and had a territory of new england pretty much so i used to drive around all over New England and meet companies that we used to try and sell these services and products to. And as a result of that, um, I spent probably the, I was there five years. So the last three years I was there, I probably spent almost all my time driving around New England, meeting entrepreneurs and business owners. Mm -hmm. And it sort of sparked an interest in me. And right around that time, it probably would have been, you know, early 99, I think. Um, the whole dot-com boom and venture capital was taken off. So I'm meeting with all these entrepreneurs and they're all talking about, you know, venture capital and growing and all this stuff. And through a friend, I had an opportunity to meet someone in a firm called Summit Partners and uh, ended up there, um, you know, in pretty short order. So it wasn't, I didn't end up in venture capital as a result of some very long and deliberate job search. I ended up there by doing something I've done over and over in my career, which is just kind of trusting my instincts as to kind of where things are going. And everyone was talking about venture capital back then. And for a, at the time, probably 25, 26 year old, basically salesperson with no Harvard MBA or no background, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. And so I was fortunate to get a great opportunity at Summit. It's an amazing firm and an unbelievable experience. Um, and I learned the trade of venture capital there. And in, in that job, like it's rigorous, right? You were smiling and dialing pretty much as far as being part of the private equity firm, calling CEOs. And again, you mentioned you're like 25, 26 years old and you're calling CEOs of these companies. So what was that like as far as the foundation of building? Your yeah, it was very different. And you know, um, I had, I was advantaged because I had a really good experience at Merrill Lynch where I was doing something very similar, but ultimately in person. So I would, you know, get an opportunity to go meet someone who was known to, to Merrill Lynch, the firm, I would go meet with them. Oftentimes they're a very successful business owner or entrepreneur. And I'd find myself as a young person trying to talk about complicated topics that, um, you know, I'd say the first few times I did it, I felt like there was massive information asymmetry and that entrepreneur probably knows a lot more about this than I do. But, you know, you do enough homework and you, you work hard enough, you come up the information curve pretty quickly. So I developed a lot of confidence and uh, I applied the same thing when I was at Summit. Um, it was kind of the same approach. And, um, you know, I did. I, I, I was used to it though too. So I was used to calls. I was used to sales. I was used to rejection. It's a little bit of a different time. Part of how I got the opportunity at Summit was there weren't a lot of those, there weren't a lot of uh, PE and VC firms cold calling back then. Mm -hmm. Summit was one of maybe three at the time. And so for someone who basically spent the first five years of his career in either kind of general management type roles or really sales, it was really sales roles at the end of the day, my jobs at Merrill Lynch. Um, it was the only way I could sort of translate that experience into the profession. And I was lucky because, you know, because of that experience, I was able to make the transition. I was able to be successful, which opened up more opportunities. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, I didn't know anyone getting into venture capital unless they had like a Harvard MBA or something like that. Now, again, the world's changed a little bit again. Now, like if you've been a really successful entrepreneur, you can get into the field, but there wasn't a lot of ways in. So, um, you know, I, I got a little lucky, I suppose. And then after uh, Summit, you went to Highland Capital Partners where you were co-founder of their consumer fund. So what, what was that all about? And you were working with you know, Tom Stenberg, who, you know, founder of Staple. So, so how did all that come together? Yeah, so my venture capital uh, trajectory is a little um, a little different than others. And um, again, going back to you asked me what I was like when I was a kid, I, I've kind of always been a little bit of a free spirit and I follow what I think the opportunities are and where my nose tells me to go. And uh, I had, through a variety of circumstances, I'd met some folks at Highland Capital Partners when I was at Summit and um, they had recruited me to come over and help them um, build out, at the time they were largely tech and healthcare, build out more of a growth stage um, uh, venture arm uh, and, you know, start doing bigger checks, more growth stage companies. Cause we, we ended up doing a lot of that at Summit Partners. And so this would have been the, um, I want to say, yeah, the, the mid 2000s, if you will. And so it was post.com bubble. Highland had a big fund, but they were doing seed and A checks. They needed to write bigger checks. So it was a great opportunity for me to come build that out. And when I got there, uh, Tom Stenberg, who had left Staples at the time, had sort of hung his hat uh, about a month before I got there. He'd hung his hat as a uh, venture partner at, uh, at Highland. And so pretty quickly, 
uh, we were looking at opportunities and um, you know, I started working closely with him to help apply the things I learned at Summit and doing deals to what we we're looking at at Summit. And the first deal we looked at of consequence was Lululemon. And, um, yeah, it was pretty <laughs> crazy. And uh, we ended up- Context, this is year what? This is- This is early, this is 2005. Right, so I mean the brand's monstrous now, but back then it was- It wasn't, yeah, it was very different. They had, I remember they had three stores in the US at the time. Yeah, three stores. And they were still trying to figure out, you know, do we just put the logo? Do we put the name? I was that early. And uh, we ended up, Advent led the deal and we took a piece of the deal. And that was the first deal we did. And then that basically, um, how would I say it? That, that emboldened us, that emboldened us to say, you know, there's really no one doing consumer investing out there. There's, there's folks doing early angel investing. And then there's the summit partners. And at the time, the Western Presidios and the Berkshires and other firms doing bigger deals, but there was nothing in between. So we hatched the idea to raise a uh, fund, which we ultimately call the Highland Consumer Fund to invest basically the original thought was $5 million into kind of growth stage consumer companies, right? A bunch of $5 million checks. And uh, that was the genesis of the Highland Consumer Fund. And we went out, we found two more partners, Ted Phillip, Tom Guilfoyle, and we raised the fund in, I want to say if the close was in March of 2007. And at the time we were some of the first like truly consumer investors. And again, just happened to be in Boston, which, you know, it's not really known Boston to be a consumer hub per se. Um, but we just, yeah, we, we were early to the game there. Very what were some of the other portfolio companies during your time at Highland? So we had a handful of different ones. We had um, a company called um, uh, Guitar Center. We invested in a company called um, uh, uh, Mix One Beverages. We invested in a company called, uh, well, everyone in Boston would know City Sports at the time. We invested in City Sports. So we had a whole handful of different companies we invested in. And, and truth be told, which then led me to, you know, sort of journey to what I wanted to do next. We raised, it was a different time. Uh, we raised $300 million for that fund in pretty short order. And uh, raising a fund of that size with a small team, instead of writing $5 million checks, we, we found ourselves having to write $15 million checks. And that's a different company. It's a different profile. It's a different company. And I said to myself, if we were ever to raise Highland Consumer Fund 2, what would that look like? And my thought was smaller, back to smaller checks. I'd be more brand focused. Um, and I would focus at a stage where there's enough proof of concept that you know the company like has market acceptance, but there's still an opportunity to scale. And then that led me to start Raptor Consumer Partners with Jim Pilata. And then ultimately for a variety of reasons, I you know, worked with Breakaway and we did kind of a similar thing, but um, I set out on this course to really uh, focus on companies that were doing anywhere from a million in revenue to 15 or 20 million in revenue looking for that three to eight or $5 million. And that's kind of where I spent the better part of the next, um, yeah, probably the next 10 years. And you've made some other like great investments along the way of, you know, brands that we all recognize like Spartan race and uh, Grillo's pickles. That's one of those that like, I actually do love their product. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, those, are, those are, you know, those are good ones and are good examples of, um, you know, that inflection point. I remember when I first met Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan Race. He found me, actually. Because, again, there wasn't a lot of people doing consumer investing, not to mention who would understand even what an obstacle course race was. And at that point in time, he had eight races. Um, companies now got a million people a year do the races. I recently exited, but we've got a million people a year do the races, 35 countries, hundreds of races. Like, it's just a you know, it was kind of a moment in time. And um, uh, we focused very heavily there on building the Spartan brand. When I invested in that company, we were the number three or four company in the space. Um, and we just had a vision for how we were gonna approach it differently than everyone else. And we ended up cleaning up that market and becoming the number one. So that was a, that was a great one. And, and Grillo is another one. Like there's one with an amazing entrepreneur. Travis Grillo is a great entrepreneur. Um, took a business from a pickle cart on the Boston Common to, uh, to now what is a very, very sizable business. And, um, and one that I think, you know, will probably get sold to a big food company in the next 24 months. Um, and it's pickles. And I've always just said to myself, you know, obstacle course races, pickles, that's another good one too, like in markets that are more well known, but, um, you have to, I think as an entrepreneur or as an investor, you have to look for these unique opportunities. And, uh, and that's what, that's what I've done. I've kind of 
that niche that I saw back with Tom uh, still exists today. Circumstances at the time, relative fund size, and then 2008 obviously happened, which is a little tricky, but like at the end of the day, um, that opportunity we saw back then still exists today. And so the investments I made at Raptor and Breakaway and whatnot, they've all, you know, they've all been part of that vision for Highland Consumer Fund 2.0, if you will. So how did you source deals? Like, you know, again, we're not talking about the next great mobile app or cloud computing, security, you know, infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, whatever. Uh, you know, these are consumer products. And like, how would entrepreneurs like seek you out and be like, hey, pitching a pickle company, right? And then how would you make the decision to make that investment? Is it similar to, you know, the world of tech where it's, um, you know, team, product, and market size? You know, is it similar philosophy there? Yeah, I think a lot of it's the same. I think um, if I had to say one of the things that's a little different, um, I think you have to be able to, when you're dealing with more tangible consumer companies, you have to be able to sometimes disassociate your personal likes and preferences mm -hmm. from what the personal likes and preferences are of the target that the company is, you know, after. So great example is I'll use Spartan race as an example. I happened to at the time had been coming off probably a five year stint of being a rather, um, you know, a rather passionate endurance athlete at the time when I kind of met Joe from Spartan. Um, but I really, didn't have a ton of interest in going out and getting muddy and doing all that stuff. So even to this day, I was on the board for seven years. I only did two Spartan races in seven years. That's a, you know, something probably I shouldn't admit uh, in public, but I just, it was never my thing, but I got it. I understood why people liked it. Um, I had a different lens that I brought to it, focused a lot on the brand. Um, pickles a little different. I like pickles. That was easy. You know, it's a great product, but you know, any of these things, it's gotta be a great product you got to look for a great entrepreneur. Travis Grillo is an amazing entrepreneur, right? And I think as an investor, you have to always remember you're not running the companies. You know, Joe DeSena is a great entrepreneur. You know, I got a boxing fitness business I'm invested in with George Foreman and his partner, Anthony Rich, AJ, and they're great entrepreneurs. Uh, I had invested and then we sold for a, you know, pretty, an amazing return, a uh, frozen Greek yogurt company called Yasso, two great entrepreneurs, um, Drew Harrington and Amanda Klein. So I think for all investing, I've been involved in some different tech things as well, excuse me, um, some different tech things as well over time. And uh, I think at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneur, the market opportunity, and then the product or service, like is it uniquely differentiated and is it really special? Because if it's not in this day and age, whether it's a tech product, an app, a whatever, or a pickle, if it's not differentiated and it's not unique, um, it's not going to go far. I think the one thing I've seen change in the last 10 or 15 years that's probably most relevant for your audience is the time you have to seize an opportunity has dramatically compressed. Mm. The competition and capital flow to interesting ideas way more quickly than they used to. Uh, if you are a uh, entrepreneur who's got a great product, a great service, something very unique, something you're passionate about, and you know it's different, it's time to go. Um, because people knock you off and copy you so fast these days, you got to capitalize on your chance to get ahead of everyone. And that's why you see these companies these days, you know, take a WeWork, take a Tesla, take whomever, like the, the breakout companies. That's why they raise so much money, in my opinion, because they have to, because they have to sprint ahead of everyone. Yeah. Uh, once they know they're on to something. Yeah, they got to spend big for market share. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, okay, TB12. So why did you step outside of the investment world and get back into an operating role as CEO? Yeah, so I had um, you know, a couple opportunities over time to run companies previously. Um, a couple of them were in situations where investments I'd made that became a little challenged. And the entrepreneurs, I've always, I've always thought about when I was investing, I always thought about partnering with the entrepreneur and uh, developing you know, deep relationships with the entrepreneur. And I think as part of doing that, um, I had a couple of instances where I had entrepreneurs at different points ask me to step in and run companies. Um, a couple of them happened to be in the food business, at, at two different food businesses. So that was sort of my first foray into um, operating companies. And um, after I did that, uh, did both of those, it made me a better investor because it gave me a perspective that I hadn't had in maybe the five or 10 years before. So I learned a lot in doing that. And again, both of them were challenge situations. And I promised myself I'd never step into another challenge situation again after doing um, two challenge ones. So then I had a unique opportunity to present itself 
which then expanded, you know, kind of how I look at myself and the opportunity uh, a bit more. I had been approached by uh, an entrepreneur who developed an idea for a new pizza, actually. And uh, he approached me and has the idea with him to start a pizza company, which we called Oath Pizza. And we have a very unique crust, small footprint, real estate concept is going back three, four years. The world was changing before delivery, but we saw some of that coming. And, um, and we started that business um, and I founded it with him uh, basically. And um, we, I ran it for the first year, year and a half. So again, keeping with my promise to myself, I'd never, you know, jump in and fix someone else's problems. If I was going to run something, I'm going to make my own problems to fix. Um, we, we started that company and now four years later, we've got 60 locations. Uh, we're kind of around the country and uh, I'm no longer actively involved day to day, but um, the sheer effort of lifting that thing up from the ground um, gave me that last piece of appreciation for, I think, what entrepreneurs do and the, uh, the risks they take and the challenges they face that I think as an investor, you can never really un truly understand unless you've done it yourself. So for me, that brought me kind of full circle. I was happily investing, uh, you know, after that and kind of doing my thing and a couple of the companies we just mentioned. But um, I had a rather fortuitous uh, incident a number of years ago, uh, probably three or four years ago now. I tore my groin playing, uh, playing hockey one night. A good friend of mine said, you should go to TV12 in Foxborough and uh, check it out. And uh, I thought it was only for professional athletes, the training center in Foxborough. But I quickly got better. And uh, being at that point, you know, an investor and an entrepreneur myself, looking at it saying, gosh, I got better really quick. This is special. Someone should tell Tom like this business should be scaled and it should grow. So that led to a series of conversations with Tom, who I met through some mutual friends. And uh, he shared with me his vision for the business, the vision he had, the vision of his co-founder, Alex, who he started the business with. And uh, we sort of hit it off. And where I thought, what I thought TB12 could become, I guess in part was their dream at some level relative to a lifestyle brand and see Tom's training methods and everything he and Alex had developed together, see that all brought to the world. Um, and so we put our heads together and in, in talking a little bit more about it, the conversation transitioned from investing to, to running it. And, uh, you know, being, uh, as we were talking about earlier, someone who spent the better part of the last 10, maybe 15 years being around consumer brands and things like that. Um, I know enough to know that there's not a lot of opportunities to build brands around iconic people like Tom. And there's certainly not a lot of them in Boston. And um, just being a big fan of Tom's at that point and getting to know him, a special person, and his co-founder, Alex, who's also a great guy. Um, it's just for me, it felt like the right challenge at the right time. And having come to it very personally from, you know, it's funny being a bald guy with that hair club for men. I'm not a client. I'm a whatever founder, you know, that commercialist <laughs> out there on references. Uh, I was actually a client of, uh, of TB12. And so I had a very personal connection to it and therefore a very strong belief in Tom's approach and his methods and how he takes care of himself. Well, it's uh, it, it was interesting. So the, the, the men's health article that was published a few months back about the operation and everything, I didn't realize it was Willie McGinnis that introduced him to Alex Guerrero. And I guess we have Willie McGinnis to thank for, uh, you know, longevity of how he's trained and adopted that, you know, philosophy, which it talks about in the article, like he used to just, you know, uh, you know, bench presses and squats, which is kind of the mentality I had. That's what you did when you were an athlete in, in high school or college. But you know, what he's doing is totally disruptive of that train of thought. So what, what led him down the path of actually starting a company, right? You know, it's one thing to train differently, but it's another thing to actually build a company, build a brand. And then he's a busy guy training for football. So then investing time into something else because he's busy with his family too. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a great question. And I'll tell you something funny he said the other day. Um, so we opened a new training center uh, on Boylston Street in Boston. And we can talk about our business model at some point if you'd like. But um, we have a couple things going on in our business. One is, you know, uh, getting some of these marquee training centers open. And so we opened one on Boylston Street. And uh, we opened last Monday. And uh, so Tom came by that night. We did an event for the employees. And some of the employees had some guests with them. But we had about 125, 130 people there. And... Um, you know, Tom, myself, and Alex spoke to the to the group, and you know, Tom very much said, you know, I remember sitting six years ago with Alex at my coffee table in L.A. back when he lived and he had a place out there, and never at any point when we were talking about you know 
wanting to bring this to the, to the world, never did I really think I would be a business owner. And, you know, then if you can imagine him looking out on a crowd of 125 people and 130 people, and you're like, I didn't want to be a business owner, but now I got a lot of mouths to feed here. So it's a big, you know, it's a big, it's a big change. And um, I think what drove Tom and what drove Alex and I think what, you know, it's easy, a little easier to talk about Tom at some level because he's a bigger public persona. People can relate to it uh, more so. Um, every, again, everything you see in Tom, like he's a really passionate, committed person in everything he does. And he's really passionate about everything he's learned about taking care of himself, everything him and Alex have learned together. And so it was very natural for him to want to bring this to people. I think it has been surprising to him now a few years in and since my arrival and since we've been growing um, all the other things that go into it now too. And uh, my take is he's looking at this very much like you'd expect Tom Brady to look at it. Like he's competitive, like we're in this to win it. We're in this to be excellent at what we do and uh, we're in this to make a difference. And uh, I think that's been probably one of the most exciting things about, you know, being a part of TV 12. Well, let's talk about the business. So like, what is the, like kind of the foundation of TB12 and then what are you seeing moving forward kind of the evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think to answer it best, I'll just step back and I'll rewind the clock from the coffee table six years ago where him and Alex hatched the idea to basically start a small center in Boston, in uh, Foxborough actually at the time, uh, out near Patriot Place where the, where the Patriots train and play, obviously. Um, they started a small center there. That began, and it was really focused on, you know, kind of the cornerstone of their relationship at the time was um, deep force muscle pliability work. So a manual therapy approach, a very specific approach that Alex had developed over time to help keep Tom and other athletes healthy, particularly if they were injured. Um, some of the things that Alex is able to do with his hands and, and to people's bodies, um, gets them back faster, gets them healthier faster. And, um, and this just basically, um, gave them the idea to start the business. And then from there it became like, okay, well now we're helping people do that. We should think about how can we train differently? So Tom, Tom's an innovator and certainly Tom and Alex are, and I don't think Tom gets a lot of credit for that, but you know, in his pursuit of excellence and his, when he made the decision to play at least 45 a number of years ago, he knew he had to change things. And so it went from a center to then, okay, how am I training? What are the tools I'm using? So I mean, then they started using bands, not weights, right? And so resistance bands, not weights. And it's like, okay, what other body weight tools? And it was like, okay, wait a second. What am I drinking, right? And then, okay, well, what should I be adding to my water to make me hydrate better and faster? Okay, what am I eating? And so our business slowly began to add different pieces to it, largely then driven by the need of, hey, um, we've got a training center in Foxborough, but there's a lot of people in the world that are not in Foxborough, so how can we reach them? So I started a small e-commerce business, and then that led to the notion of, well, at some point, we got to tell people more about this. So Tom wrote a book, mm -hmm. The TB12 Method, which began to, you know. Which was not a small book. <laughs> no, not a small book. Yeah, not a small book. Began to encapsulate things a little bit more. And that, that grew over time. They launched an app, which was an attempt to, you know, again, communicate more of what the lifestyle was and what was happening. And, uh, and then when I got involved, the, the, the vision was how can we expand on this base, this kind of lifestyle, which Tom has, which is really the foundation of it. I'd say the lifestyle itself is built on this notion of deep force muscle pliability work, functional training, strength and conditioning in a very specific way, properly, proper nutrition, proper hydration, and then thinking about your cognitive health and your state of mind. And so, you know, wrapping all those five things together really, uh, to me, inform the TB12 performance lifestyle. And I think a lot of what Tom has learned and done to take care of himself can work for people on the field, but also off the field and in a business setting or whatever. And so our business really, long way to get to, uh, pretty simple question, but I think the context is important. Our vision for the company is to um, expand upon this performance lifestyle brand we've started, bring to people the tools, services, information, and education of how Tom trains, how he recovers, what he does uh, in various forms. I'd say the pinnacle of the experience is coming to one of our training centers where you can work one-on-one -on -one with a body coach and get the full, if you will, TB12 experience. Um, the step down from that, because we can only have so many centers so fast, is what can we provide you online relative to content, information, and then ultimately products and services to kind of onboard you to the lifestyle in some capacity. So, um, so that's our business. Its foundation is these uh, centers, 
these places where you can come to work one-on-one -on -one with folks. And then the next part of it is the information education in our e-commerce business. So it's really a two-pronged business model. Uh, we have a wonderful advantage of obviously having, uh, you know, a founder, co-founder with a, uh, a large platform. So, um, so it's a big advantage to get the word out there for sure. Well, the t team is doing a good job. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Tom obviously has the brand and that helps in terms of promoting uh, the company and what you guys do. But uh, there's obviously uh, people that are smart, uh, point in case, uh, you know, the most recent Super Bowl win. I, I don't know how many minutes or seconds later, I got an email from TB12 that said, hey, you know, buy the TB12 t-shirt on the back. It had all six Roman numerals of the Super Bowls yeah. that they wanted. And as a, you know, Patriots fan for life, I was like, yes, of course I want that. And immediately hit yes. You know, so it was like timing. And they, they knew that this is the time to seize an opportunity for sales. Yeah. And that, um, I'm glad you noticed that. I'm glad you appreciate it. I'm glad you bought a shirt. Um, so we, in the last, I've been here about a year now and we've worked really hard to build a foundation for growth. And there's a lot of pieces to the foundation of a business in my mind, but for our business in particular, I think from a marketing standpoint, it's developing the execution uh, capabilities to take ideas and bring them to life. And in that particular instance, you know, we spent a little time over the holiday season last year, getting a lot smarter about email marketing, getting a lot smarter about timing and cadence of things. We began to crystallize our vision from a design standpoint for things. I think one of the cool things that helped with that shirt, it's kind of a cool t-shirt. It's actually Tom's favorite t-shirt that we've done. Um, not just probably because it's the six and all the Super Bowls, but literally I think he likes the design of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we had a lot of things working for us and I think with any business, timing matters, and certainly with any consumer-facing business, timing matters, and we live in a very crowded world, uh, information overload, and if you're not timely with your messaging and your communication and your offerings to consumers, you're probably gonna leave something on the table. Um, we didn't leave anything on the table with that. Um, I don't know that it would have been possible to sell more t-shirts, to be honest. I guess um, a small chance there could have been, but that's a nice thing for our business too because we don't, um, we're not a t-shirt company. We don't want to be a t-shirt company. We want to be a performance lifestyle company. But uh, a Black Swan event like that, a Super Bowl win with a guy like Tom and the, um, the platform that gives us, it's an amazing opportunity to obviously make a little bit of money, but also create a lead gen tool. And if we can, you know, use email campaigns like that and Tom's platform for lead gen, that's a tremendous advantage. So, so what are the plans as far as growth in terms of hiring for the company? And, and, and I guess I probably shouldn't ask two questions at once, but how do you measure the success? Like at what point do you feel like I, you know, John Burns, I accomplished what I set out to achieve here? Yeah. So I think uh, I'm, it's really hard when you work this close with Tom, right? At one level, because you have to accept that you're not Tom Brady. Like Tom's a very special guy and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to call him a friend and work with him this closely and whatnot. But, you know, so I'm always, careful when I try and draw analogies, but I think there's a couple things that he and I have in common. Certainly he has a lot more going for him than I do at some level, but like he's got, you know, he, he, there's some things we have very similar, similar. And one of them is this, like this pursuit of excellence, right? This pursuit of uh, perfection, if you will. And so, you know, I don't know that I'll ever sit back and say we're done. Like we won the game. I don't think businesses are like that. And um, I think in particular having such a wonderful, you know, uh, partner in a business like this, a guy like Tom, you just, it's almost some days you wake up and you have unlimited opportunity. So I don't know that I'll ever say, you know, we've succeeded. Like that's not my mindset. That's not Tom's mindset. I'm sure you look, listen to his press conference this morning, right? Mm -hmm. After the win yesterday is like, yeah, it's a good win, but we got a lot of work to do still. That's kind of our culture here. And uh, it's certainly been how I look at things. So that being said, um, I think, uh, from where we've been in the last year, we've done a lot. I'm a big believer, you know, for the entrepreneurs out there that, you know, listen to your podcasts or investors, I think you've got to have a strong and solid foundation for any business before you really try and grow. So we've spent a lot of time this year trying to put a foundation in place, everything from people to the processes to the, um, uh, you know, foundational elements of the business relative to proof points. So, you know, opening a new location for us here in Boston recently was a big step for us. Um, we launched a number of new products this last year, functional products that kind of relate to the lifestyle, supplements, different pliability devices, um, different protein products. So we did a lot of that this year. Uh, we've grown from about 20 employees when I got here. We've got about 80 employees now. Um, so we've, you know, 
had tr quite a bit of growth in the last year. We're digesting a little bit of that right now. Like we've got some more foundation we need to put in place, more obviously HR things and things like that, but we're getting there. Um, I think from a growth standpoint, we're gonna do two things. Um, we are gonna to continue to open um, flagship locations that give people the pinnacle of experience for, for uh, TB12, so people can really experience Tom's lifestyle. Um, it's an interesting business for us because there is that physical element to it that a lot of businesses don't have. You know, we have a door, we have 11,000 square feet in on Wall Street in Boston, we've got 6,500 square feet in Foxborough. Um, those are important because they're brand beacons for us. And they're as much about the business of running the center as they are about creating the experience and community, which then in my mind informs everything we do online. So all the content we create, everything we do to educate and inform people, um, all the products we launch, all of it's born in our centers. You know, we train thousands of athletes from young athletes to professional athletes to, you know, I think the oldest client I've seen come through is 82 years old. Um, youngest is three. And so we've got quite a range. Uh, big misperception about us at TV12 is we're for professional athletes only. You know, that's a marketing challenge that I have to solve, we have to solve next year. The vast majority of our clients are not professional athletes at this point. Um, so we're gonna keep, you know, growing our center business and we're gonna keep growing our content and e-commerce business to, to help educate people more and more about all these great things Tom has learned and, and how he does it, what he uses, you know, how he approaches things. So if I'm an entrepreneur trying to start a consumer business, uh, you talk the window is compressed to, yep. to do that. So how do you go about building a brand? Because it's you know brand is so important, especially in today's day and age. And like like if you're selling a physical product and a through a retail channel, not direct to consumer, like how do you go about getting shelf space? Like 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 I, I go in the supermarkets, I see Grillo's pickles everywhere. But I, I mean, he started out with like you said a cart and Faneuil Hall. So you know, like, so what advice would you give the founders trying to build a brand and then obviously, you know, find the right model to distribute your product? Yeah. So that's like six or seven podcasts to answer that. <laughs> I know, right? I'll, I'll give you the fortune cookie version okay. uh, to condense it into one, one episode. Um, so I think um, it's funny, right? Cause people talk a lot about brand and the people who work closely with me, they'll joke and you know, I'm a brand, I'm a brand guy, right? At the end of the day, right. they'll, they'll They'll joke about that. But I think the first thing you got to do is define what's your definition of a brand, right? And what does it being a brand really mean? And I think I've learned over time that I think one of the components of a really good brand, there's all the textbook definitions, right? A brand, but I think a key part of a really good brand is values. So I think brands are a reflection of values at some level. And we develop affinities for certain brands because of the values that they embody or represent. And I think um, oftentimes in the businesses I've worked with, and for some of the people in your audience, the, the uh, entrepreneurs and founders, um, I think you got to really think about your brand as um, an embodiment of the values you're trying to, to um, put forth in your product or your service or your own personal values. So like, so like Travis, as an example, um, he really values clean, good, homemade food. And like, that's important to him. So everything he does that, like he really values um, thoughtful, simple design, right? So the look and feel of the brand is very personal as well. He's a very personal guy. Um, and you know, I've seen this over and over and over with different, um, different entrepreneurs. So I would say if you're trying to build a brand, I think you gotta really consider what are the values of that brand, which is really what gives people the emotional connection to the brand. I think if you're a tech entrepreneur and you're building a tech product, you know, a lot of tech entrepreneurs are, are they're product focused, right? They're building an app, they're building a piece of software, they're doing something like that. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you also need to have a great product, right? And I think having a great product can sometimes represent the value you value as the entrepreneur having something that works, having something that's truly efficacious or, you know, different product or like whatever it is, like, like that's something you value. Um, you need to find a way to represent that to the world and communicate it. And, you know, I think once you think through values, um, I think you can really consider then position in the market. So how is what you're doing from a, from a value standpoint different than what's in the market? Um, then how do you, 
deliver that message, and then ultimately in what voice, which, which is important. And I think we're at an interesting point in time. It's one of the reasons why I think you've seen a big shift to direct-to-consumer businesses a lot is uh, consumers don't value heritage anymore. They don't value legacy, right? Yeah. They actually, not only do they not value it, they ascribe negative value to it at some level. Right. And so the reason you've had the last three to five years, the opportunity for all these um, these new direct consumer, you know, consumer brands, if you will, is because consumers perception of values are changing. You know, we value, you know, we value newness more. Right. We value unique. Right. We value um, socially responsible. Like we value all these things that are different than years past. And, you know, no matter how hard. You know, no matter how, I'll give you a simple example, but it's always easier to talk about simple things. Um, no matter how hard Hershey's wants to try to tell you that they've got a better for you chocolate bar, it's still Hershey's. Right. Yeah. And so the opportunity for new brands to come in and do new things is, you know, I think rather tremendous and it's, it's continuing. It won't change because consumers' perception of values has changed. Yeah, no, so much so many emerging brands. It's just really fun and exciting to see. And sorry, I dumped a lot on you there, but like I said, that was like seven, seven probably podcasts. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a we could do a whole series of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, what, what about the, the consumer scene in Boston? Cause that was always a negative connotation. Like, oh, you can't build a consumer in Boston yet. You know, a lot has happened. I've mean, got great companies like Wayfair is, you know, dominating their space. Uh, you've got, you know, companies like Drizzly and uh, Love Pop, which I think is really, really cool. So, I mean, those are just a handful. There's many, many more than that. But uh, so what's the state of consumer in, in, in the Boston tech scene? Yeah, so I've, um, it's funny, right? Because going back in history too, when we started the Highland Consumer Fund with Highland, we're probably some of the first consumer folks out there. I've lived with this and I've heard this for, you know, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yet, even some of the names you mentioned, like what Wombi's done with Love Pop or, you know, Nick and the folks have done with Drizzly, like you can build these companies. You know, I was thinking at some point a little while back, I was on the boards of five companies um, inside of 128, five consumer companies inside of 128 with almost 450 combined employees. Right. And so I just don't, and I just don't subscribe to the, you can't build a consumer company in Boston. I never have. Yeah. Um, I've always, you know, I've since 2005, when Tom and I decided to do the consumer fund at Highland, it took us a year to sort of pull together. But um, when we decided to do that, I've done nothing but consumer in Boston, either running or investing in companies and, you know, done fine for myself. And there's plenty of companies. I've worked with some amazing entrepreneurs. I continue to work with some great entrepreneurs. And uh, I just, I don't know, I, I, I think you can build a consumer company in Boston. And I just go back to, if you really feel like it's Boston that's holding you back, you probably shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like that'd be the best, most real advice that I could give you. Yeah. Because the great entrepreneurs that I've worked with, at something like Boston doesn't stop. Yeah, you can't use your location as an excuse. Yeah, it doesn't I stop. mean, I guess if you're building a fashion startup, yeah, you probably should be in New York, right? There are some, if you're building a... Um, company that's somehow dependent on a network effect of Facebook or being close to Twitter or LinkedIn or something like, I get it. You know, you should probably move your company because that's the best for your business. But to use location as an excuse for lack of success is just same thing. I never, I'm, I always found it annoying. Yeah. I mean, t tell them the Raj you can't build a consumer company in Boston, right? Exactly. Wayfair is pretty big. Yeah. You know, Jason, you can't build like DraftKings pretty big. Like right. you can build these companies. It's just, I've learned over time and now I'll put my investor hat back on for a second. My response when people have told me that is probably if I hear someone tell me that, if I'm meeting with them and they're looking for some money from me, either personally or through a fund or whatever, like I'm not making the investment because if you're letting circumstances of the city of Boston slow you down, the first time you lose a big client or big customer or the first time you have a major problem with an employee or whatever, you have a tech or patent issue, like, I just would worry that you're going to fold. Like Boston is not Boston. <laughs> Boston is not your problem. Yeah. Uh, you can do it in Boston. You know, I've got plenty of examples that can prove that. So, so you're you're busy building a TB12, but uh, what what do you like to do outside of work? Um, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, I don't get as much time outside of work as I would like. Um, you know, between TB12 and some other obligations I have, I'm, I'm pretty committed. I have four kids, so I take a lot of time with my kids. Um, but if I had to say I have one passion, I like to work out a lot. I always have. If you look at the companies that I've been involved with, I'm always involved with companies that whether it's 
you know, George and AJ with their boxing business or Spartan race or eating well, or now obviously with Tom and Alex doing this, I'm always into that. That's just part of my lifestyle. But if I had to say like, what's one hobby, what's one thing I would do if I just had a free day, um, I would actually probably go tuna fishing. I like to go out in the ocean, I like to go out on a boat, um, you know, and that's kind of how I'd, that's kind of how I'd spend my recreation time if I have, and I do get to do it sometimes, but between work, working out and my family, that takes most of my time. Yeah, well, I, so we did a, an investor profile a few years back together, and uh, the cover photo was you catching a massive tuna. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. I remember. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I uh, I don't get to do it as much, but that would be like my one thing I would say for fun and and I I always tell people too. Now I'm approaching fifty, so you start like you feel like you start learning some things. If I had to say, give you know, younger people one piece of advice, I think you know you, you got to focus on your family and friends. You got to focus on your job. You got to focus on your health. But everyone should find one thing that is non-related to anything. Yeah. To you know engage your interests and your mind. Um, I think it's healthy. I think it's really healthy. And we live in a world too where um, we're always connected. We're always on. Uh, we're all live in a world of high expectations. But when you're you know a hundred miles off Cape Cod in a boat with no cell phone reception. Uh, you don't like you're thinking about other things. Yeah. You know, I've done some mountain climbing, similar thing there. Like when you're up on a mountain, like it's just really healthy. Yeah. Um, and we don't do enough of that these days. So I guess as I'm talking out loud and thinking about it, I would tuna fish more and mountain climb more. That's what I would do. Yeah. If I, had more time. <laughs> I agree. You need to have an outlet. You got to have something outside of the core. Yeah. You all right, John. Well, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing, you know, all the great experience you've had as an investor an operator an entrepreneur, and uh, obviously all the great things that TV 12 was up to super excited to see what that company becomes. And obviously, um, you know, rooting for at least one more Super Bowl win, if not more, let's go. Uh, we're, we, we're rooting for a big time here. Super Bowls are good for business. So we'll take it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.